What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. I tried to imbue my work with a sort of interiority. Interiority. So you paint inside. Well, inside my head. So a landscape would attempt to express how I feel at that time. Lonely, joyous, worried, sad. That sounds very interesting. We'll have to see if this week's guest has had to suffer through any conversations about his work like Jesse Buckley did in that clip from I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Our guest this week is photographer Gregory Crudson. His large-scale photographs have been compared to Edward Hopper and to filmmakers like Hitchcock and David Lynch. He joins us for this week's Top 5 Movie Landscapes as Characters. Plus, thoughts on Miranda July's Kajillionaire. All that and more. I try to imbue my reviews with a sort of interiority too, Adam. Good luck with that. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. The New York Times has written of Gregory Crudson's work that he doesn't take photos, he makes single-frame movies. The Brooklyn-born photographer is currently the director of graduate studies at the Yale School of Art. His large-scale cinematic photos have appeared in galleries all over the world, and his collaborators have included Julianne Moore, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Tilda Swinton, and Gwyneth Paltrow. His latest collection is called An Eclipse of Moths, and here I'm quoting from Crudson's own description of the photos. In them, he places figures in, quote, vast decaying industrial landscapes and impinging nature, unquote. We'll provide a link to some of Crudson's work in the notes for this show so you can see them for yourself, but trust us when we say that the comparisons to filmmakers like Hitchcock and Spielberg and David Lynch are apt. We are very pleased to have Gregory Crudson on the show. Welcome, Gregory. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here, and I'm a very big fan of the show. Thank you very much. We're excited for this top five. And we wanted to do a little bit of setup here for our listeners. And yes, we've given maybe some indication of your work in terms of its scale and its cinematic quality. And I know you probably don't get asked to do this very often to talk about it to people who aren't familiar with it. But how do you describe what you do as an artist? Well, I think maybe the best way to put it is I'm have always tried to find a language that hovered somewhere between the still photograph and the cinematic production. And I, by nature as a still photographer, think in terms of still images, but I've always been in love with movies. And I love the way movies look. I love the production value of movies. And so from very early on, I've been interested and trying to create a sensibility that uses that technique, but in the service of telling a single story in a frozen moment. Do you remember, Gregory, if one of those loves came first? Was it, you know, photographs that you connected with and that led you to film or was it the other way around? I think from early on, I've always um, was, uh, I think from the time I was 10 years old when my father brought me to the Diane Arbus retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art. I understood the power and urgency of photographs. But then I've also very early on loved movies and loved going to movies. And our close family friend was Pauline Kael. And in fact, I live in the town in Great Barrington where she lived and worked for the hmm. whole part of her end of her life. And she was a big influence 
on me in terms of, you know, my early development in terms of the power of films. And, and so there's always been this kind of ebb and flow between the two things. But mm. in the end, I think primarily I'm a storyteller. I guess that's probably the best way to put it. I think we're going to get to some of the movies that had a profound impact on you, at least a couple, when we get into our top five list here in a little bit, Landscapes as Characters. But I know some of the other films that you really appreciated were Blue Velvet from David Lynch and Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby and Michael Powell's Peeping Tom. And I wouldn't classify them all as horror films per se, but they all have a certain ominousness to them. They certainly have a, a, a darkness and, and mystery. What is it about those movies that really connected with you? Well, I think when I, for instance, when I saw Blue Velvet, when I was a, a graduate student at Yale, in fact, I felt like that was a movie that changed my life. And those, there's the films that like you could count as the great films. And then there are the films that like in one way or another profoundly change the way you look at the world. And I think for that film particularly, it was his vision of the American landscape and the dark underneath. And uh, I definitely was profoundly affected by that film particularly and, and others. And I think as artists, one of the things we all do is absorb influences and try to reinvent them in one way or another by taking certain aspects of the motifs or the sort of production value or, or the themes and try to make them your own. Since your work has really inspired this top five, Gregory, we wanted to talk a little bit at the start here about a photograph from your most recent collection, Red Star Express. So again, for those who haven't yet seen this, and we will certainly link to your work so that listeners can check it out for themselves, but could you just describe the picture a little bit and talk about what went into it conceptually and maybe some of that production design element too, the technical aspects of it? Well, this entire series in Eclipse of Moths, there are 16 pictures that all are exterior landscapes that are on the edges of a kind of industrial city. And they have to do with the relationship to sort of smaller figures to the vast landscape and finding within that a certain unease or dislocation or alienation. But in all the pictures, there's a sense of a search as well. And there are three teenage boys who've been riding on bicycles who come across a truck trailer that's been set on fire. And it's all set looking from above and uh, from afar. So it gives a kind of sense of, firstly, beauty, I think, mm -hmm. but also an underlining mystery and like all my photographs, what actually occurred remains a question. It's never resolved. And I think I really like that limitation in photographs as opposed to movies. Hmm. Just one more question on that before we get into our list. I imagine that for some photographers who work in a different milieu than you, I suppose, the part that appeals to them or one of the things that appeals to them is it's something they can largely do individually as an artist. And what I mean is they can shoot things that don't involve subjects at all, or maybe they need a subject, maybe they have some kind of assistant, but for the most part, it's them and the camera. And you clearly are drawn to these, these sets that involve you having to corral 
a whole lot of people, a lot of equipment. Why is that something that appeals to you making it? I don't know if it feels this way for you or not, but I'm almost a, a communal experience versus just an individual one. Well, honestly, it's really the only way I know how to make photographs at this point. It's to me, the, the camera is just a vehicle in the whole production to express a way of viewing the world. And this is the way I sort of figure it out to tell my story using uh, lighting primarily as a narrative code. I'm not that particularly comfortable with the camera. I never use it on my day-to-day life. So for me, I very much operate more like a director would, I would say. In fact, I have a camera operator, uh, director of photography, and you know, whole crew that works very much like a very much like a movie production. So our top five this week landscapes as characters, as we said, very much inspired by your work. And it's funny, Josh, I don't know if you had the same sensation when you were putting together your list and looking at different examples, but usually the only judges of our list, the validity of our choices, is our audience when we put it out there. In this case, we really are in some ways trying to look at film through the eyes of our guest, Gregory Crudson, kind of see these landscapes and these images the way he does. So we're going to have him to reckon with here here in person, so to speak, at least connected here virtually, judging us as we go. Are you ready for that, Josh? Yeah, thanks for clarifying the intimidating <laughs> nature of doing this. I mean, putting together the list, I found it enjoyable. I sat with, you know, a, a book collection of his images, and it was really fun. Now you put it that way, and I kind of want out. <laughs> well, in terms of a little bit of setup, and I'd love to hear both of you talk a little bit about what criteria you used, even though I think we've we've largely addressed that, at least in in a, a grander way, if you will. But I did try to eliminate movies that immediately spoke to me in terms of the grandeur of nature. So something like Lawrence of Arabia was just off limits. Like, you get it. The desert's a character. Similarly, I left off any Westerns. And also, I, it meant that I set aside a director who I think probably comes up for a lot of us when we think about landscapes. And I know he's going to make one of your lists and he absolutely belongs. So I'm I'm looking forward to that pick. But I also thought about a filmmaker like Werner Herzog and not wanting to go with films that were about maybe the grandeur slash terror of nature, you know, Fitzcarraldo and Aguirre, the Wrath of God and the, the jungle. And I similarly threw out movies like you know, is is Vienna a character in Before Sunrise or Paris and Before Sunset? Of course. The same way, you know, small town Minnesota informs everything you see in Fargo. But that's not really where we're going with these lists. Am I on the right track so far, you guys? I believe so. Okay. So, yeah, it really was for me about, uh, you know, the location or setting not just being key to the narrative. It is what the director and the director of photography are doing with the physical space itself through the framing, through the lighting, the positioning of characters to evoke a certain tone or mood. And I think some of the words you used, Gregory, are probably going to come up as we go through all of our picks, unease, dislocation, that that search. I think that that's something you're going to feel, hopefully, if we're we're doing this right. So, Josh, let's go to you and then we'll get to Gregory in terms of what were the determining factors for you? Yeah, I'll throw another word in there, and I'm going to take this from the essay you wrote, Gregory, in the book collection of your work, In a Lonely Place. There you use the word disquieting. And so I really did, while I was making this list, I let what influenced your work 
influence my list. So it was it was like double layered. It was not only your images, but also the 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 images you've cited as inspiration. So I think of something like Edward Hopper, those paintings, which you beautifully described as being full of impregnated moments. And I very much think of Hopper as a cinematic painter, a storyteller. You know, uh, the woman alone in the room in Western Motel, there is a whole movie there. So for my list, I ended up with movies that really had two things. They were disquieting in some way and then also had those moments in them you could point to that stood alone as still photographs. And if you did that, they could tell the whole story of the film on their own. So like Western Motel, you're curious about the movie that could be, but you also kind of know the movie that could be. And so the films that I chose worked similarly or at least certain scenes or even images in them work similarly. So Gregory, then as you were forming your list, did the titles pretty readily come to mind that you wanted to go with, or did you have to do some exploration? There was definitely a, a longer list that I had to shape. And I think what I did was I looked for connective tissue between the different movies. First and foremost, they all shaped me as a photographer and uh, have influenced my own vision in one way or another. All of them are photographic in that there's an attention to the still image. All of them in one way or another deal with the American landscape. They all have a rootlessness to them as a theme. And each and every one of the films, there's a journey and there's a search and a pursuit. And I would also say that there's innocence and corruption in each hmm. of the films. And, and there's a relationship between a kind of Edenistic landscape and violence. Yeah. And so those are the films I gravitated towards. And, and I think finally, each director in one way or another, through the use of cinematic language, reinvents the, that landscape and makes it their own. It feels transformed in some way, mm -hmm. subjective, singular. Yeah. So before we hear those picks, we jump in with our number five choices. We've referenced it a couple times that we'll put links in our show notes over at filmspotting.net. We're always talking about a visual medium here on the show, but usually we can play scenes or we can provide context or supply evidence for a point we're making with audio. That's obviously more difficult here where we're really kind of breaking down specific imagery. So I just wanted to point out that if you're in a position to play along or you want to listen and reference after the fact, go to filmspotting.net, click on lists. Or you can go to our episodes page, find this episode, 794, and there will be a link to this top five list in those show notes because we're going to put together a gallery that will showcase all of the images and movies that we reference. I really think for this show, that's pretty essential to point out. So with that, Gregory, I can't wait to hear your number five, and I'll tease it a little bit, talking about innocence and corruption. <laughs> this is really it, right? Yes, my number five choice is Night of the Hunter, the 1955 movie directed by Charles Lawton. As you both know, it's his only film that he directed. And it's a very unusual film, very strange from the beginning to end. But what I love about it is its lush, eerie, black and white view of the American landscape that's been transformed, influenced by German expressionism, but 
very much an American tale that we're dealing with ordinary life. We're dealing with small towns. We're dealing with a notion of the family. And we're also dealing with uh, the very question of of good and evil. Mm -hmm. Unlike many of my other film choices, there's an exaggeration in terms of artifice. Um, Many of the interiors and exteriors are clearly on a soundstage, but all of that adds to the sense of that we're entering into a world that feels haunted in a certain sense. It also is very much from the perspective of the children's point of view, and we really get a sense of the world outside feeling larger than life and filled with a kind of menace and wonder. Mm -hmm. Of course, most strikingly is their journey down the river while they're being pursued by the Robert Mitchum character who has a kind of omnipresent sense of being. So that's my, um, it's, 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 I think, one of the most beautiful and one of the strangest films ever made. Yeah, it really is. And one of the key images for me, the indelible one I always go back to, speaks very much to what you said in terms of it being from that child's perspective. It's that image when he looks out, I think he's in the top of the barn and it's framed in such a way, right, where it, it seems, you know, it's a doorway and we've got that kind of image and we see the Reverend Powell off in the distance on that horse and he's he's so small and yet seems so big and terrifying in that moment. Well, and even the other iconic image, one of the other iconic images from that film is the murder victim underneath the water, her corpse being tied to the car and floating kind of among the seaweed. To your point about this being from the kid's point of view, Gregory, it is this, you know, this tableau that is realistic in a sense, even though it's clearly been manufactured, but it's also something that could be from a kid's nightmare. So we know it's depicting something real in the narrative of the plot, but it might very much also be exactly how this kid is dreaming about that or would imagine a scene like that. Hmm. It's interesting. Uh, that is one of the uh, one of my favorite moments in all of film history, and I actually made a photograph on a soundstage many many years ago. It was part of my Twilight series of a woman floating in a flooded living room that was directly connected to hmm. wow that scene in the movie. It's a masterpiece, The Night of the Hunter, and it of course occurs to me, Josh, as we get to your choice and looking ahead to my number five that we have already here out of the gate violated one of Gregory's rules, or we're stretching the rules, so to speak, because we're not dealing explicitly with American landscapes. No, I mean, already I need to crumple up my list. I only have one American landscape. <laughs> and it's certainly it's certainly not my number five. One of the first filmmakers to come to mind for me was Turkey's Nuri Bilga Jalan. And as a matter of fact, his 2002 film, Distant, it even features a photographer as a main character. That movie also, like most of his I've seen, deals with emotional distance that is echoed by the landscapes. Probably the most arresting landscapes in a Jalon film are those from Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, but my pick is a different 
wand. It's 2014's Winter Sleep. And here, one of the things I love about this film is the way it employs incredibly unique architecture to communicate disquiet. So the film is set and largely filmed in this rocky region of Cappadocia. And it features these homes that have been scoured out of the enormous boulders that dominate the hillsides that are part of the natural landscape. Now, the main character, played by Haluk Bilgener, he operates one of these homes as this boutique hotel. And the movie kind of traces... He's a former actor, if I'm remembering correctly. He's sort of a minor celebrity. And it traces, it offers this character portrait of this man as a complete narcissist, but starts experiencing these things crumbling down around him. So the defining image in in Winter Sleep for me, it comes during the long, cold, wintry off-season where the tourists have left and the hotel owner does begin to awaken to his own self-interest. There's this shot of him just trudging about his property in this trench coat all amidst these, these rocky hills and these strange homes. And he just, that trench coat, it looks like the gown of this weary monarch or something worn by a subject in a, in a Gregory Crudson image. That's how it struck me. So that's Winter Sleep from Nuri Bilga Jalon. I'm going to keep the Jalon love going with my number five. The movie that we discovered his work through from 2012 is when we saw it, Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, a movie that takes place predominantly late at night and into then the early morning. And the story is pretty simple. It's a police commissioner and a prosecutor, a doctor and a murder suspect driving along the countryside there in Anatolia looking for a corpse. They're looking for the body that this murder suspect says is out there. And I look back at my notes and our review, Josh, and I actually did lament that I didn't have a better grasp of the technical aspects of cinematography because I wanted to find the language to express how watching shots of a three-car caravan weave its way through the countryside at night could be that thrilling. Mm-hmm. And it really it really was to me. I was just trying to understand how that could be so stunning. And it really did occur to me that if if I was Jaylon and I was the DP in this case, Gokan Tiriaki, if I had his talent, well, you know what, and the shots look that good, then I'd just shoot them driving around for 45 minutes to an hour as well, because it's that much fun to look at. And if you look in particular at the the shots as the cars first emerge in the distance, it's almost like torches from a brigade. You could think it's a mass of people coming. They're they're almost apparitions forming, and they're they're getting ever closer to us. And it is ominous. I'll use that word. It's it's mysterious. It's unsettling. But it's it's also really beautiful, especially at dusk. And I think they're using a wide angle lens there, and the way that combines with the diagonal we're at, so we get the full effect of all of these layers. An object that's white in the foreground the large tree, the road that's winding through, and then that's all accentuated by the layers of color within the sunset, the the gorgeous kind of blues and oranges that we see there. And then you can go to another shot where it's then the the subjects are out of the car and they're investigating. And it's again on this on a slant. The men are positioned really dynamically across the frame from top left to bottom right. And there's a real starkness to it because the light, it's pitch black. But there's the the light that's only coming from the car headlights. And, you know, as I alluded to, not a whole lot happens in terms of action in this film. But because of the compositions and the deliberateness of the shots and the pacing, there is 
tension. It invites you to look. You're you're scouring the dark for clues and for meaning the same way these men are. And even in the morning, when they're around the crime scene, it's essentially the same shot as one of the other ones I mentioned. You get the layers in the grays uh, in the sky and the clouds and that deep focus. So it feels so vast. It feels so endless where it's almost suggesting, okay, great. You found the body. <laughs> you found that object you were looking for, but you're not any closer to having any answers or truly understanding the senseless things that we do to each other as humans. And maybe it is appropriate, maybe semi-autobiographical. They're distant. You mentioned, Josh, Jalon did begin as a photographer. And I, I love, I always think about these choices that we're all describing in terms of the the artistry and the creative choice that went into it. And of course, practicality is almost always part of the equation as well. I found an interview with him where he was talking about winter sleep and he was reflecting on his past and his first films. And he said, my mind was always thinking, even when I wrote the script, according to my budget and according to my crew, hmm. my first feature film, I shot with only two people, myself and a focus puller. How can you move the camera? So that that's driving it too, is just there's not a lot of camera movement because he is thinking of those practical factors. But I think we've seen going up to winter sleep, as you mentioned, as the scale of his work has increased, the visual eloquence has as well. And you're, you're right, Josh, I think that when you take these, these still frames out, in terms of we're talking about film and photography, but these Jay Lon frames have the the texture and the richness of great paintings for me. Yeah, that's that car caravan you you talk about, Adam. That is like a lush landscape painting that has just come to life, right? In that in that moment before your very eyes, you could just stare at it as a painting. Uh, absolutely. Did we make a good enough case, despite them not being American landscapes, Gregory? Absolutely. Fantastic. Uh, let's get to our number four choices. We'll start with you, Gregory. My number four is Badlands, Terrence Malick's 1973 masterpiece. And this is mandatory for all photographers as one of the great works that it's even in, in the title, Badlands, that play out that tension between beauty and, and menace. As you both know, Malick almost exclusively shot in the magic hour where the landscapes transformed into a place of uh, kind of romantic beauty. And parenthetically, I always shoot in magic hour because it's the only time when my artificial lights work with the ambient light of the sun. Hmm. He only used ambient light. He was not interested in using artificial light. And I think it's really interesting also to compare his work to photographers working at the time, particularly William Eggleston. And there's a very similar kind of shared aesthetic of, of the American subject matter and landscape and uh, use of light. And in keeping with my basic themes, certainly it's a movie that deals with a loss of innocence, particularly the Holly character mm -hmm. who gets brought into a very dark world of violence. And if I were to pick one scene, it would be their encampment that they made at the side of the river where they've created a home for themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's just so beautiful in terms of the picturing of the landscape and also their romantic 
life that they've created that's then disturbed by the bounty hunters. And then, of course, those great sort of vast open views of the Badlands with the car driving through and the scale and the grandeur of it. And I've certainly been very influenced by Malik's work, but particularly Badlands to me is like the most direct and clearly seen story. Mm. When you talk about the loss of innocence, yeah, I think that encampment right here at the start, that's one of Malik's paradises that gets lost, right? Paradise mm-hmm. lost here of these two and, and just watching that unfold is is kind of part of the horror of, of a movie that is, you know, could be maybe otherwise overlooked as a Bonnie and Clyde riff, but really has this undercurrent of horror too. Yeah, absolutely. The Edenic quality that you referenced at the top, Gregory. And for me, that scene in particular, the Treehouse Hideout, was my number one Malik scene when we did it here on the show a few years ago for, for a lot of reasons that you mentioned. But I also think about a single image, which is my number two Malik image from a top five list a little bit more recently. That shot of Martin Sheen basically is the scarecrow. It's, of course, in the magic hour, but he's got his arms up on the gun and and he looks, of course, like a scarecrow out in a field. And you think about just the the potency of that image of a guy who just is like a scarecrow and that he really he has no idea how to how to really be um, to function in this world. He's completely ineffectual. And yet in that he can still do a lot of damage. Right. There's still there's still a menace to him uh, as well. So, uh, yeah, Badlands, you're two for two on masterpieces here so far, Gregory. So I I concur. Josh, you're number four. Here's my American landscape for you. So it's and it's it's one of the American landscapes. Hollywood comes from the bling ring. Few people probably like Sofia Coppola's bling ring as much as I do. Maybe Sam, our producer, likes it that much as well. It did make my top 20 of the 2010s list that we did earlier this year. Pretty much everyone, though, does appreciate the shot the movie is best known for. It's this long, slow zoom in on a house in the L.A. hills from another hill far away, and it's capturing one of the robberies that's being conducted by the film's gang of teen thieves. So it begins as this distant establishing shot, and we watch the figures slip into the house. We gradually get closer as they move about, and I think it eventually ends when the house the house fills the frame and the figures leave. So we've witnessed the entire robbery. I think like some of your images, Gregory, there's there's almost like a Where's Waldo feel here where you're trying, you don't even notice sometimes that there are people in the frame. And it's the movement here which first keys us that, okay, this is what we're watching. This is what's happening. And then we watch them and the story unfolds. You have to search for the person in the frame, find them, and then follow them. Now, as much as this scene I think is the defining moment in the film. It also really stands apart from the other robberies that we've seen because previously we've been in the houses with the kids. We've been witnessing some of the quote unquote fun. I think there's something particularly disquieting about seeing it from this angle, removing ourselves from the thrill. We're more voyeuristic here. That's one element of it. I think there's the added worry about them getting caught because we're outside of the bubble and Mm -hmm. and we know there can be as much as we may disapprove of what they're doing, we still kind of don't want them to get caught, right? So we know that that might happen. And then this is the scene where what they're committing strikes me the most as a violation. And I haven't quite figured out what it is about that. Maybe it's the silence, maybe it's the remove, but this is the one that most feels like a violation. 
uh, of any of the other robberies that we see in the film. So uh, it's a stunner of a moment. A, a good example, I think, of a movie unto itself. That's a short film right there, all to itself, that sequence in the bling ring. Yeah, it's it's a great choice. It's one of those moments, like a lot of these picks we're describing, where you get to you get to stay at a distance. It, it's It's a deliberate shot. There obviously isn't really any cutting. You get to just exist in that space. And there is mystery to it. Like you said, you don't really know what's happening. So uh, even like Anatolia, you're kind of you're kind of scouring for clues as you as mm. you watch. And I think that's that's part of what makes that that shot in particular so compelling. I'm going to violate the American landscape rule here one more time. And that's for my number four pick, which is Melancholia, the Lars von Trier film. This is from 2011. And I searched the film spotting archive, Josh. This was episode 373, November 2011. This is about three episodes before you officially joined the show. Director Ryan Johnson was my guest host for that episode. Yeah, things really fell apart after that. <laughs> Maybe there's an alternate universe or there's a planet in the distance where film spotting is happening with Ryan Johnson. He never made a Star Wars movie. He's just been here the whole time. Possible. Yeah. <laughs> you never know. But this is a movie that is told mainly in two parts, focusing on the relationship between two sisters, Justine, who's played by Kirsten Dunst. She's getting married. And Claire, played by Charlotte Gainsbourg, who's putting this whole shindig on. And it's all happening while a planet called Melancholia is about to collide with the Earth and end all life as we know it. There's those two parts, but I'm, I'm really going to focus on the overture. And I think this is a good transition from my number five pick, where we're talking about the intersection of film and photography and art. Because Von Trier is mainly utilizing still imagery here which is in contrast to the rest of the film, which relies on a lot of handheld shots. And this is just 16 images over eight minutes, all set to the prelude from Tristan and Isolde. And we also see the influence of Peter Bruegel's paintings. It's particularly heavy in this film, and it's called out directly in the intro. One of those 16 shots is showing the painting, The uh, Hunters in the Snow. And that's one of the reasons I appreciated the movie, and I wanted it on this list because I've referenced it before, but Bruegel's The Fall of Icarus is a piece of art for me that was hugely formative in terms of just appreciating all art. And there's nothing about that painting I would say looks like a lot of the other picks we're talking about or looks like your work, Gregory, but the landscape is the piece. The power of the painting comes from the juxtaposition of the action that's taking place within it while Icarus's leg is just sticking up slightly out of the water. I mean, there's a Where's Waldo effect. You really have to study that painting to find Icarus in the shot. And of course, he's he's fallen from the sky and is drowning. So there, there's this kind of this conflict there and that something monumental is happening that's occurring within the painting, but it's being treated in a really small, minor way um, because it's it's happening against this backdrop of the world that's indifferent to it. And I think <laughs> Melancholy is a film where it, it the world is indifferent to the concerns of the people <laughs> at this wedding. And the key image within that sequence of 16 for me, of course, the whole sequence does does work for our purposes, but it's the eighth image. And it's this shot on this estate with this mansion that's that's really it looks like a castle directly in the center and the vast lawn and we see justine in her wedding dress they're all dressed up like they're going to be for the wedding claire's on the other end and claire's son leo is in the middle and there's just barely any perceptible movement by the characters within the shot you kind of notice some 
slight steps they're taking. Claire's dress is waving just a little bit behind her. And the, the way the trees are lined up on the sides and they trail towards the center, they, they put our perspective on that, on that mansion. But then that's moving away from us while the characters are moving towards us. And it all makes it legitimately a bit dizzying to look at. And then Von Trier has it staged so that each one of them has some celestial body pretty much directly behind them. And it's Melancholia behind Justine. It's the moon behind Leo and the sun behind Claire. And the website, The Art of the Title, has a nice interpretation of this. They they broke this whole sequence down because it leads up to Lars von Trier's title. They said, Justine is an outside influence on the family unit and a natural force of destruction, hence Melancholia. Leo remains passive throughout the film, a smaller entity, unable to act, but tethered to a larger body. He's the moon. And Claire, the sun, the nurturing force, panicking at the realization that there will be no life left, nothing left to grow. So Melancholia is one of those movies that I knew as soon as I saw it, I was going to need to revisit it. <laughs> that still hasn't that hasn't happened. That's that's kind of the way it is with the Von Trier films. But that image in particular of them on that lawn is one that has always stuck with me. I just think it's a great choice. It's such a beautiful, powerful movie. Yeah, those tableaus you're referencing, Adam, always strike me as sort of unheard fairy tales. Like they they could be the images from these stories that have been around for generations that we just haven't heard yet. There's so much potency to them and possibility, even as they work within, you know, kind of the dizzy narrative that mm-hmm. that is at hand. That brings us to our number three picks. Gregory, what do you have in that slot? No Country for Old Men, the Joel and Ethan Cohen film from 2007, the most recent film that's on my list. I mean, what can one say about this movie? <laughs> it's it's a, a true masterpiece and it's the closest my choices come to a Western and it maps out all the themes that we've been discussing in a very powerful way. However, the lines between innocence and evil and it's much more complicated and blurred. What I love about this movie primarily is just the iconography of it. Like not only the the Western landscape, but the time period, which is in the early 1980s. And I'm so attached to just the use of those nondescript cars and taxis and trailers and and every part of like the motels. All of it feels very much in keeping with my own work in terms of an attachment to that period. I think also they were hearkening to great photographers of the time, certainly like Stephen Shore and Joel Sternfeld. Their presence is felt throughout. And I think in reference their work almost directly sometimes. There's also long periods of this film that has no dialogue whatsoever and completely revolves around the long takes of landscapes in terms of the themes of the search and the being pursued. Mm-hmm. And the, of course, the great character, Javier Bardem's character, Anton Shergar, really, um, to me, is like a new version of the Robert Mitchum, Harry Powell hmm. character. Yeah. So the <laughs> omnipresent, unstoppable force yeah. who's the obsession of 
of the search and of the money in both cases. Mm-hmm. So. You know, it's funny you mentioned the period aspect of the film, because you're right, that is absolutely when it's set. But it seems to me one of those films, and this strikes me about your work as well, that you, you really do have to pay attention to the details to fully get that. There's a timelessness to it. The the Coen brothers are not, are not forcing you to exist in this headspace of the 1980s at all. It feels like it, feels like it could be almost any decade to me. Yeah, it, it, it's that sense of it's outside of time. That's it, yeah. It exists almost in a place that's everywhere and nowhere, you know. Yep. Feels familiar and strange and also very relevant to the moment, too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's there's definitely a contemporary currency to the, the, to the story, and the ambiguity is so important. I love the opening, particularly. It starts mm-hmm. with still images of the landscapes and then the discovery of that massacre. It's just so shot so exquisitely. Every detail is described, the horror, the beauty. It's, it's perfectly described. And, of course, Roger Deakins' impeccable mm-hmm. cinematography is transforming as well. Yeah. So you mentioned, Gregory, No Country, the closest to a Western on your list. Were, were Westerns something you wanted to avoid? Were the, you know those sorts of landscapes maybe a little bit too cliched for what you were going for? Well, in a certain way, I feel like it's, it's the easy answer to the question. And mm-hmm. maybe because of that, because the lines of good and evil are almost too clear. Like for mm. me, I'm in all of these films that I pick, there is a, there's an ambiguity in terms of the figures, the subject's relationship to place, and in terms of narrative, it's maybe slightly more complicated or mm-hmm. uh, left unanswered. Certainly, No Country for Old Men is the ending is more of a question than any answer in terms of uh, any kind of final story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right. My number three is Ash is Purest White. Uh, This 2019 Jiazhanka film was part of our Contemporary Chinese Cinema Marathon last year. I think it was one of the main reasons for doing the marathon, really. It was so well regarded. Ashes Pierce White starts as a crime movie, but expands to become this mesmerizing mood piece. It's about personal alienation. Also, you can sense, even if you're not Chinese, that it's about national dislocation. And I think that Janka captures both of those elements in the narrative and definitely in the visuals. I think of that gorgeous middle section set in the Three Gorges area of the Yangtze River. There you get the sense that progress is seen as something that, at least at the human level, is just completely disorienting. And that's all about where Janka is placing the characters in those landscapes. But it's not just landscapes here. It's also about he how he frames the two main characters, and they're played by Zhao Tao and Liao Fan. He frames them against staircases, against walls, against these vast housing complexes. And then the image that really came to mind for me in the context of our list was that cavernous, empty stadium where she is pushing him in the wheelchair. It's just the two of them. It actually reminded me of your Sanctuary series, Gregory, your images of the empty backlots of Rome's Chinachita Studios. 
Um, th- that was kind of what the the connection that I made there. So you know, this story it traces this couple's reunion after being separated early in earlier in the film, but they really do remain separated by this existential force you feel. So they're reunited in body but they're stubbornly kept apart in spirit. And I do think the composition of the images are really what make us feel that more than anything else. Uh, so that's Ash's purest white. Yeah, you mentioned the the Three Gorges Dam sequence, and that's so striking because it's described to us as a place where in a few years it's all going to be underwater. So immediately you get the sense of it being a purgatory, right? Like mm-hmm. everyone's just waiting for that impending doom. So why... Why move forward with any kind of progress? Why why do anything? I mean, it kind of makes me think of melancholia, my my last pick in that way, right? But well, the doom and here the doom is because of progress too, right? Yeah, because it's yep. the dam is uh, so it's all mixed up together. Yeah, but it is all these different landscapes too that that Janka captures. It's the small towns that are in decay. The urban centers seem almost futuristic, um, but then we get some of those landscapes as well that are that are really amazing. So great choice. My number three is a film spotting golden brick winner, a 2017 American film, Columbus from director Koganada, a movie about a character who's the son of a very famous uh, architecture scholar. John Cho plays Jin, and he basically has to come back home. And he is in Columbus, Indiana, where he meets Haley Lou Richardson's character, Casey. She's kind of a budding architecture expert. She works at the library. And this this choice for me is a little bit different than some of the other ones we've talked about because it's really reflective actually of the harmony that can exist between landscape and characters. There's still some ambiguity for sure because these characters are wrestling with a lot and they're they're asking some very serious questions about art, about architecture, about their their own identities, but there's definitely a sense of harmony here between the landscape and these structures. And Columbus, Indiana is a town that features these incredible examples of modernist architecture which Koganada utilizes and of course you could put almost any camera, any way on some of these buildings, and it might be impressive, but it's really about how the characters fit and how they function within and around those spaces. There's just nothing random or accidental about any single shot in this film, but at the same time, to me, it never feels stilted or strained in any way. And I I go back to one scene in particular where Jen and Casey are standing on opposite sides of her car facing each other engaged in a dialogue. And I can't remember the exact spot, whether they're at a library or or what it is, but the frame cuts them off in basically a medium close-up in profile with the windows that are very neatly framed behind them in such a way that it's almost as if they're sitting at tables within the frames of the building talking to each other. And I also always go back to the shot outside the dialogue that happens between them outside the North Christian Church. There's this very large steeple that's positioned between them as they stand amidst the trees and it's in long shot. So we see the ground, we see their whole bodies, we see all the layers of that. And Koganata was on the show when this movie came out and I asked him a pretty obvious question, but I was trying to get at his process a little bit. I asked him about 
the planning that goes into a shot like that versus it kind of being instinctual, maybe in the moment. And he said, yeah, absolutely. Every frame of this movie was labored over. He said, you know, there was a plan. There was always a strategy that we're going to be wide. We're going to have clean lines. We're going to gather in advance at the locations and we're going to plot this out and we're going to know where everyone is going to be. We're going to limit our coverage. That's the other big thing for him. And, and he used a phrase during that interview that I think I've heard you guys mention in this list, which is the sense that that frame has to capture our attention for a whole scene. It's not, it's not just there to establish a shot the way oftentimes long shots like this are. It's, it's the scene. And he said for him, it was almost like being a viewer in the moment and knowing that he just wanted to linger there. He wanted to linger and observe. And I think that's what's so important about all of all of our picks, really. I think that same sense applies, that idea of letting the, the viewer linger, letting them observe, letting them examine. And it's so crucial to Columbus because we have to exist in this space, too. We have to see the way it affects these characters, whether we find it comforting or not. We're not going to process that for ourselves with quick edits or not being able to really just, as I said, exist in that space. So the the eye and attention to detail there, the ability of Koganata to to put the viewer in the position where they get to see the space, maybe the way the architect intended for it to function within its surrounding and the way he wanted people to see it. That's the the feeling you get looking at these frames anyway. And I know we've been eagerly anticipating a new film from Koganada. I think we've even talked about it after Yang. It was on the radar for a while, at least now on IMDb. It says it's in post-production and slated for a 2021 release. So here's to hoping that happens. Well, that's the trick with Columbus, Adam, is that it's not just a series of appreciative shots of architecture, but it's how that becomes cinema. I I think of that moment you talked about where they're talking to each other over the roof of the car. I think it's like this modernist office space that's illuminated mm-hmm. behind them that that is kind of like surprisingly perched atop just a generic mundane strip mall. So you have this moment, uh, Casey even describes it uh, appreciatively saying how it's it comes up amidst all this mess, I think she says. And, and then here's the cinema part. He cuts to a close-up of her hand. Remember how she delicately kind of traces mm-hmm. the lines of the building? And so that's where all of a sudden it fluidly becomes this piece of cinema at the same time. That is That is still all about architecture. All right, so more cinema, more architecture, definitely many movie landscapes yet to explore with Gregory Crudson after the break when we'll wrap up our top five lists. Plus, Adam and I will share some brief thoughts on Miranda July's latest, Kajillionaire. Stay with us. Thinking of you
most people want to be cajillionaires. That's the dream. That's how they get you hooked. Hooked on sugar, hooked on caffeine. Ha ha ha, cry, cry, cry. Me, I prefer to just skip. So do I. Richard Jenkins and Deborah Winger, along with Evan Rachel Wood, co-stars of Cajillionaire, the new film from Miranda July. It's July's third feature, following 2005's Me and You and Everyone We Know and 2011's The Future. Jenkins, Winger, and Wood play a family of con artists. It opens in limited release this weekend before coming to VOD in October. Now, Josh, I am really curious for your thoughts on Cajillionaire because you've admitted to finding it personally challenging to get on July's wavelength, which you have compared not entirely favorably to your beloved Wes Anderson for its fussily arranged, determined weirdness. That's from your entry for this movie on Letterboxd. So what did you make of Kajillionaire? What, from what I understand, finally worked for you about this movie compared to at least the one other film of hers you've seen, me and you and everyone we know. Yeah, what I was getting at there is is that I don't really have any right to complain about anything being fussily arranged or having a determined weirdness because I do love Wes Anderson so much and those critiques are often thrown at his films. So it really is a wavelength thing, right? It's am I going to be able to get on board? Um, it's more on me than on the filmmaker. That's the sort of, you can say that for almost every filmmaker, but I think particularly for someone like Miranda July, And I think what helped me here is that unlike me and you and everyone we know, I haven't seen the future, as you said, this one has a concentrated central narrative. You know, previously she worked in vignettes in her first film. And so that allowed me to kind of settle in with the character's quirks a little bit more, get to to know them beyond those affectations. Um, and so, yeah, we do get to sit with with this really strange family, these low-level con artists, the parents, and they scrounge around running these scams with their adult daughter, played by Evan Rachel Wood. And the movie takes a turn when they meet this sales clerk named Melanie, played by Gina Rodriguez. This is what I want to, what I want to get your take on, Adam. They kind of bring her into the fold um, and... That upsets the equilibrium. Now, Rodriguez, who I love, is a very different kind of presence, or at least, you know, generally, I think, than what these other actors are being asked to do in this film. Winger Jenkins Mm -hmm. and Evan Rachel Wood. Um, Those three are clearly in a Miranda July movie, as I understand them. And Rodriguez um, seems to be from a different movie. And I'm just going to ask you, did that work for you? Yeah, I think it mostly did. You're absolutely right. I think that assessment is sound. And I think you'd admit, too, it is partly the point. It upsets everything, that equilibrium in this family. And really, the Evan Rachel Wood character's sense of herself, her family, the world around her, because she is, I think, in part, so dramatically different than them. She just seems to have a little bit more of an expressive life than they do they're so they're so i don't know twisted inwards you know Mm -hmm. and that's not how rodriguez is at all i'm melanie right okay uh melanie meet old dolio old what dolio old dolio okay i like that i like that (sighs) see this is exactly the kind of thing that i've been wanting don't touch don't touch the table I've been through tremors a lot smaller than this. It just turns everything electric. It's like zap. Because this is the way the big one starts. The noise, it just keeps building and building and building. This one's not good. The big one will be loud. I mean, if you're lucky, you'll get crushed. 
and then you'll you just die right then and there. Immediately. A never-ending void. Wow. So, YOLO. <laughs> Am I right? I guess overall that that worked for me, though I will also say, and I like this movie, maybe even a little bit more than you, and I've liked her previous films as well, but where this movie really connected with me wasn't so much in that relationship because everything around it in a movie that is filled with oddities and undeniably weird and quirky, everything about Melanie's decision to even get caught up in this family is really absurd. There's a sense that you got to step back a little bit and go, oh, yeah, I know what kind of movie I'm watching. It may be set in modern day L.A., but this is this is Miranda July world where really bizarre things just happen all the time where the movie got me. Josh really was in, I'd say it's two big set pieces, and I don't want to give them away because I want people to experience them. I'm not going to really dissect them or what worked for me. But there's a scene where this new group of con artists, this now extended family with Melanie, decide to infiltrate a home. And what happens there is such a microcosm for this film and for Miranda July's work when it's working for me, which is we just exist in this space with these characters that is so uncomfortable, but also profound. You feel like something really, truly moving is happening and is occurring for these characters, but it's layered with a little bit of danger. It's layered with fear. It's layered completely with artifice, of course, right? So it's real and it's not real at the same time. And Everything about that I found really exciting. And the other one is this moment of clarity, this epiphany that old Dolio, that's what her character's name is, has following an earthquake where we just exist in the space with those two characters for a while in darkness. And she emerges and the camera follows her in real time, having that experience. And we get to follow along with her. Those two scenes alone, Josh, were enough for me to say Kajillion, there's a movie that people should see. Yeah, people should definitely see it. I think the former set piece where they break into or invite themselves into the older man's home is is more successful, at least for me, than the latter, because exactly what you're saying, I I sensed it was stretching for something profound and then felt it along with it. Whereas the Evan Rachel Wood as old Dolio sort of revelation in that latter sequence seemed to kind of be forced on the moment and mm-hmm. um and, and I didn't quite feel it or what it meant entirely for her or her other relationships and I think part of that is what you're talking about the movie does shift at its best I think it's kind of a consideration of when is family the idea of family itself a con right and and that's really interesting to me and that's mm-hmm. where the movie is strongest it does shift in its last third to really become about the relationship between old dolio and melanie and again while while both actors i think are good um rodriguez really gets to display her comic chops here which which is great to see especially after she was misused in 2019's miss bala and evan rachel wood is really committed in this sort of monotone almost unrecognizable performance but they don't click together. They, and I don't know if it's just a matter of those two disparate presences being just too far apart where Melanie is just too much from the real world. Um, mm-hmm. But there was something about that chemistry that didn't click, which became more of a problem as the movie 
headed in that direction. But there's so much visual style in this thing that I did appreciate mm-hmm. that recurring motif where the family lives basically in this office space that they're renting. <laughs> Against a, a soap yeah. bubble factory or something, where, yeah, or or it's a car wash something or something. Like That's that. what it seemed to me almost. Yeah, right? we don't ever really find out, but whatever it is, it makes bubbles on on regular schedule seep through the walls, and the three of them have to be home to scoop them up in garbage yeah. cans. You know, and they've it's accepted just, this as part of their lives. It's That's the transaction. Yep, exactly, and and uh, just that creepy image uh, that is recurring is is kind of such a great July image that holds so much power. You're not quite certain why or how, but it does for you in the moment. And then you could kind of work backwards after the movie and figure out, you know, what that might mean to the characters, what it might mean to you and what it means overall for the film. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I think I'm getting there. I think, you know, I'm learning to be a Miranda July fan more. I I do want to catch up with the future. Does that, how does that kind of fit within these three? Give me a sense of that. Oh, it, it fits. I mean, it's been a while. I was looking back through my notes and all I could really find is I remember we did our top five movie pets at one point. And that film, The Future, is all about this this couple, this young couple deciding they're going to, I suppose, embrace adulthood and have some responsibility and they buy a cat. And of course, it being a Miranda July film, the cat talks okay. and maybe doesn't talk <laughs> to them, as I recall, but we can hear its thoughts. It is what it is. It's another wavelength movie. Mm-hmm. I remember I remember getting on it, maybe not to the point that I did with me and you and everyone we know. And I like Kajillionaire better than the future overall, just because I think there is there's a boldness to it, whether or not it all mm-hmm. completely works. I don't disagree with you completely about where that relationship goes. And I suppose how how authentic it, it really feels, how much you really buy any chemistry between them. But the world that July creates around it. And the experience she puts those two characters through and the truly the raw emotion of it for such a quirky movie. We're so used to these types of films, these absurd universes that get created. They also often feel very distant Mm -hmm. and detached. And you do not get that at all for better or worse. I know that's maybe what some people can't fully embrace is that she's a sentimentalist at heart, or at least she wants to push buttons. She really does want to push raw emotional buttons and this one balances that weirdness and absurdity with that raw emotion in a way that was compelling for me well again miranda july's kajillionaire it's currently playing in limited release it'll come to vod in october next week here on film spotting we'll review the new film from director kirsten johnson it's called dick johnson is dead johnson of course a longtime documentary cinematographer she made her directing debut in 2016 with camera person which was a film spotting golden brick award nominee josh you may have even had it in your top 10 of the year number eight really really went for that one i think i included it in at least one category of our rap party awards as well that year yeah this new one documents her aging father's final years by staging quote fantasies of death and beyond, unquote. Our friend Scott Tobias from The Next Picture Show in a recent letterbox blurb said of it that he saw it at True False in March and thought, I'd never see a better movie this year, saw it again, and can confirm. So I am usually in sync with Scott Tobias. There are occasions where we're not aligned on a film, but we share similar tastes. And I was already excited about this film. Reading that makes me even more excited for Dick Johnson is Dead, which is coming to Netflix. Next week, we will also continue our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon with Barbara Loden's first and her final film, 1970s Wanda. 
Yeah, after Wanda, Loden only made two shorts before her 1980 death from breast cancer. She was only 48 at the time. So really eager to check out Wanda for the first time on next week's show. Yeah, one of the core films that for me was an impetus behind us doing this Overlooked Auteurs Marathon, focusing all on women directors. We will share on our next show, Josh, as well, the results of the current film spotting poll, which was inspired by Dick Johnson is Dead. We asked our listeners, what is the best film just from the past 10 years about adults and their aging parents? These were their options. Lulu Wang's The Farewell, Alexander Payne's Nebraska, Marinade's Tony Erdman, Sarah Polly's Stories We Tell, Mike Mills' Beginners, or Noah Baumbach's The Meyerowitz Stories. Of course, we will give you the option of other as well. Currently in the lead is Lulu Wong's The Farewell. Colton Butcher in L.A. writes of The Farewell. Nainai is the goat. Okay. Enough said. Okay. <laughs> if you would like to vote in that poll and leave a comment, you can do that at filmspotting.net. Noah Baumbach's The Meyerowitz Stories. I don't know that it would have taken this anyway or maybe finished too up high josh but sam may get mad at me we did add that a little bit after the fact i was wondering in already yeah yeah i think sam just felt bad enough recognizing that it truly did belong on the list and that's a good movie i think we both gave that a favorable review i believe so a few years back again you can vote over at filmspotting.net we are happy to share the results of our latest contest we announced last week the release of the new hitchcock classics collection it's available now in a 4k ultra hd combo pack with blu-ray and digital code it comes from universal pictures home entertainment four iconic films from the master of suspense yes rear window vertigo the birds and psycho But for the very first time, the original never released uncut version of Psycho, of course, in this collectible set. There's also hours of bonus features, expert commentaries and more. We have five digital codes to give away, Josh, for that uncut, unreleased version of Psycho. And we're going to give away one of those collections. So why don't you start us off with our first digital code winner? We had a ton of entries. A lot of people interested in Hitchcock, and the question was simple. Well, really, it was quite difficult. You had to pick which one of those four films you think is the best. Which one is your favorite? Michael Thomas has his choice. Of the four Hitchcock films you mentioned, Psycho challenged the norms of the movie-watching format. The leading star of the film is murdered shortly into the film. Hitchcock demanded that audiences stay for the entire movie. Movies usually ran all day with people coming in and out of films at odd times. Psycho also has the iconic shower scene, and it has one of the most disturbing characters in cinema, Norman Bates. Quinn from Phoenix also says, Psycho is the best. Bernard Herrmann's score, Janet Lee's scream, Martin Balsam's face anthony perkins eyes (laughs) we have another winner here stephen huesby he's also a film spotting family member on patreon and comes from grand rapids michigan depends on the day if vertigo tops my list but today it is rear window it is perfect with almost everything you could ever want in a film experience while maintaining a tight intimate and suspenseful portrayal it has the mind games of vertigo It has some of the director's best moments of suspense and terror. It has the audience surrogate as protagonist, voyeuristic yet unable to get up and do much of anything. It has one of the best entrances of any actor ever in Grace Kelly. And did I mention Thelma Ritter? The list goes on and on and on. 
well argued Stephen. and I don't want to give anyone short shrift but I'm pretty sure Quinn from Phoenix also a film spotting family member another winner is Jennifer Lassard she says it's Rear Window as well easy the way he expertly throws you into the position of voyeur is fascinating and unsettling Congratulations also to Dakota Arsenault, who said Vertigo is not only my favorite of the group, but it's my favorite Hitchcock. But then again, all four are stone cold classics. Yeah, definitely those winners representative of the overall batch. A lot of picks for Psycho, probably first with Rear Window right behind Vertigo close. I don't know if anyone actually said the birds, Josh. I didn't count up all the tallies and read all of the responses, though, of course, all were considered and put in that hat for those five random selections. So we congratulate those winners. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and I will set you up with your code. That brings us to the grand prize. One winner who gets the collection gets all four of these films, Josh, in that new ultra 4K HD format. You do the honors. That winner is Sam in San Diego. Listen to this, Adam. Confession. At 28 years of age, I have never seen a full Hitchcock film. I've seen scenes from the birds in a film class, and through an ex-girlfriend, I watched the first four seasons of the Psycho prequel TV show. If you select me, you can sleep well knowing you're helping someone get learned up on the master of suspense in the highest resolution possible. <laughs> so things worked out for Sam in San Diego. Yeah. He's going to get that set. No shenanigans there. This was, this no was just a blind draw. Josh, how dare you? How dare you even <laughs> suggest well, that there isn't a full official mm-hmm. legal process mm-hmm. in place okay. that pulls these winners. No, it really was. And I was encouraged to see that Sam is going to be able to enjoy these films for the first time, if not on the big screen. He's going to maybe do the next best thing. So congratulations, Sam, and all of our winners. Again, email feedback at filmspotting.net so we can set you up with your prizes. We mentioned the Film Spotting family, and one way you can support the show is to join the almost 1,000 members of the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. Exclusively for those members, we had another trivia spotting opportunity that took place This past Friday, we called it Trivia Spotting 2, the squeakquel. (laughs) We had some very special guests join us. In addition to you, Josh, me, Sam, Kat Sullivan, our PA, Golden Joe Dassault joined us this time. And also, how about, you know, just Michael Phillips from the Tribune, Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer reunited from Film Spotting SVU. Yes. We had our friend from the New York Times, Mikado Murphy, our friend from Seattle Screen Scene, a contributor here on Film Spotting occasionally, Melissa Taminga, even The Professor. Nathaniel Myers, he was a paying customer. Maybe after all those voicemails and setups he did for us, we should have comped him a ticket. I don't know. What do you think? That that might have been nice. The poor professor. (laughs) He bought before I even knew, Josh. Okay. It ended so appropriately with a showdown because two teams did tie. Neither your team nor my team. No. There was a tie. It had to be broken. And it came down to the team captains. How about this? Matt Singer versus Allison Wilmore. So fun. Yeah. So we had to have a playoff. Yeah. And Allison won. I was nowhere close. I think my team actually only finished one point, maybe two out of first place. But had we tied and it was a three-way showdown, we definitely would have lost. Because that final question from our great quiz master, Thomas Todd, what year did the kid come out? The Charlie Chaplin film? Mm-hmm. I honestly would have been... About a decade off, which is really embarrassing because I once took a college class on Chaplin and Keaton, but I wasn't anywhere close. And I think Allison got it dead on. 
I yeah, I believe she did. Uh, I at least had the decade, so I feel a little better about that. Good for you. Although I don't know, I don't even know where my team placed at the end of things. Obviously, <laughs> obviously we didn't win, but th- this is just kind of how the night goes. You're you're having so much fun that while Thomas was kind of running through where everyone mm-hmm. landed, um, I knew we weren't at the top and you just kind of got invested in that showdown. So if anyone else on uh, Casa de Mis Padres remembers mm. where we actually placed, please remind me. I'm just, I'm curious. I'm hoping we weren't you don't last. Know. I don't think no, we were in last. Well, you were maybe close, but mm. <laughs> yeah, it is so much fun with this group of people. My team was called the International without Clive Owen, and we were so <laughs> dubbed, Josh, because or we dubbed ourselves because we had two listeners from Melbourne, Australia on Team International. We also had a listener coming to us from Guatemala, so it seemed that it was fitting. And through five rounds of trivia up to that point. You get 10 questions plus a bonus question. You hear them, you write down your answer if you know it, and then you get together in a breakout room and decide on your final set of 10 answers. Up to that point of the second round last game, I had always probably gotten at least seven on my own, sometimes more. I'd say I was batting maybe about 65%. Round two, I literally knew two of the answers. I don't know what Thomas did there, but I was way off. I only knew two of them, had no clue. And we ended up with 10 out of 11 points that round just because the team put their heads together. Everybody had different input and somehow it worked, Josh. We clicked. Well, and you mentioned the international listeners who joined us. I I also saw we got an email from Barry Noel in Spain between 2 and 4 (laughs) a.m. when he was playing trivia spotting with us. So that is just that's so great to see. And, And yeah, the way you described it. Hopefully gives listeners who haven't participated yet and are interested an idea of of the sense of there's not real pressure on this because you are in a group. It's a breakout room. Um, You know, if you want to be bold and in a lightning round, be a spokesperson, you have that opportunity, but you're never really put on the spot. So it is just a ton of fun. Yeah. And my one opportunity to be designated the lightning round spokesperson, I botched it, went out on the first question. (laughs) But, you know. It was about the Oscars, and I don't know that anybody really blames me for forgetting the Green Book ever happened. Well, why anyone ever nominated you to be in a lightning round about the Oscars? What? When all you ever do is talk about how you don't watch the show. You're like the, the, well, that, proudest, that, the proudest non-Oscar no, watcher valid. I know, and yet here you are as the spokesperson. I saw that one coming. I'm sorry. I saw that one coming. And yet I thought I was generally pretty good. Josh, about knowing like who's won what Oscars and not, but you're right. I don't watch the show ever, so it why did they out, pick me? I don't know. It, it helps to watch the show, yeah. Yeah, it does. We do want to congratulate Allison Wilmore's team, the Chris's. There was actually not a Chris among them, but our former PA Andy Mitchell is on the team, Stephen Miller, Adam Wells, Jim Lakowski here in Chicago, and Matt White as well. So again, congratulations to those folks. They do get to decide our October bonus content. Our winners of the first ever trivia spotting got to decide our bonus content for the month of September. Turned out to be a really good choice. We haven't recorded it yet, but we're going to talk about Vim Vendors, Paris, Texas. And then lastly, there is one more event coming up. For our family members, it's actually this Saturday. So depending on when you're hearing this, it's the 26th of September. We are going to watch 1998's Out of Sight, a Steven Soderbergh film that is in the film spotting pantheon. And we're going to watch it 
with our listeners, a virtual watch party. They get to hear me, you, and Sam say inane things as we watch a great film. <laughs> we'll try to elevate it a little bit above that. But yeah, how cool to have that to look forward to this weekend. You know, not a ton going on these days. So being able to look at my calendar and see Saturday night out of sight, you and Sam and film spotting listeners should be fun. You also get ad-free episodes as a film spotting patron, early downloads, a merch discount, and those monthly bonus episodes. You can also now get an annual membership instead of just doing the monthly donation, and that comes with a 10% discount. Patreon.com slash film spotting. Thank you to all of our family members for their tremendous support. We hope to get some of the next Picture Show folks possibly involved in a future trivia spotting event. For right now, over on our sister podcast, they've got a Mulan bonus episode available. That features Genevieve Kosky and Scott Tobias talking about the Disney Plus offering. Something a little different from their usual format. Next week, they'll get back to a pairing, which is what they usually do. They're going to look at Dick Johnson is Dead, the Netflix film from Kirsten Johnson, and compare that to Orson Welles' F is for Fake. So again, your next picture show hosts, along with Scott and Genevieve, Tasha Robinson and Keith Phipps. New episodes of the Next Picture Show post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And there's more info at nextpictureshow.net. All right, Adam, let's move on to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A few shows ago, Adam and I massacred this scene. Why do you want to make me feel so bad? You're asking me for $25,000. i am not out to make you feel bad. I want to just be able to trust you. You know, it's about trust. I have to be able to trust you with my life. Do you understand? Can I trust you? Can I trust you? Can I trust you? Answer me. Can I trust you? You can trust me. Good. So then you can tell me what the money is for. That was Robert De Niro and Sharon Stone in 1995's Casino, written by Nicholas Pileggi and Martin Scorsese and directed, of course, by Scorsese. Along with that massacre, we had an 8 from 84 review of Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America, and we did our top five Ennio Morricone scores. Also, we had a contest, another giveaway, where listeners had to choose between Martin Scorsese and Stanley Kubrick for a chance at a prize. So why then that scene from Casino, Danny Hensel in Washington, D.C. writes, the obvious connection is very, very long De Niro epics of American greed about a Jewish character directed by an Italian or Italian-American. Pretty good, Danny. Here's Andre Cadeau from Charlottesville, Virginia. Thanks to the hints, I figured out that scene was from Casino. Casino and Once Upon a Time in America both featured Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, and James Woods. I know Casino didn't have the stereotypical Robert De Niro that we find in Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, or Goodfellas, but we were expecting a little more than cadence, speed, and scrunching the cheeks. Back in episodes number 411 and number 453, Adam played Bobby D in King of Comedy and Goodfellas, respectively. Unfortunately, uninspiring performances. In episode 491, Josh took a crack at a Southern De Niro in Cape Fear. Um, let's just say it was ambitious, like Interstellar. I'd recommend a little practice before Midnight Run 2 or the fourth installment of the Fockers franchise. That's film spotting historian. I Andre like it. <laughs> Thank you for <laughs> that. We missed one. Yeah, Sam Van Halgren, our producer, notes that Josh, you just played De Niro earlier this year in a scene from The Deer Hunter. Who could forget this is this? That's right. Oh, man. But now 
we've got the model. He he gave it to us. Cadence, speed, and scrunching the cheeks. Yeah. That's but all I, you need to know. Next time I will try that. You know, Adam, I'm just like a great athlete. I I give a terrible performance. I just move on. It's on to the next mm. game, the next play. Yeah. I, I even forget the past abomination that I was a part of. <laughs> of course. Jordan Jones in Cumberland, Maryland writes, another film spotting listener and another listener named Jordan described the Robert De Niro starring epic Once Upon a Time in America as a film about friendship, greed, loss, and the passage of time. The film you massacred this week is another Robert De Niro starring epic about friendship, greed, loss, and the passage of time. Casino. I fear that another connection may be that Adam also finds Casino to be boring, <laughs> but I refuse to dig through the archives to have my heart broken, so he should ask Andre. He can probably tell him i was hanging out with a neighbor a few weeks ago and he was talking about having recently watched casino and being reminded of its powerhouse position in martin scorsese's filmography we were at my apartment and i hadn't seen casino in a while so i immediately grabbed the dvd and put it on the tv it was probably around 11 when i started the movie and i kept my eyes glued to the screen through the whole runtime which clocks in at two hours and 58 minutes so just missing out on that three plus hour film connection to one of your recent polls if you haven't been back to this movie recently i wholeheartedly recommend a rewatch i must admit I'll probably watch it a few more times before I ever find the time for the Irishman. So I can't say that I also find Casino to be boring, but I know I have said it at some point over the years of doing the show. I only watched Casino once when it came out. I thought it was fine, but it seemed like Scorsese just kind of parroting Goodfellas to me, which I already adored. And so it didn't match up to that. I know that that is probably an obscenely naive take on Casino, so don't even consider it my take. Consider it just my initial reaction to a movie I saw once in the theater how many years ago? 20 plus. So yeah, Casino for me is definitely due a rewatch. Yeah, I rewatched it earlier this year or last year, I should say, in advance of um, The Irishman coming out. And I think in the context of all his gangster films, it is really interesting. But I would also agree with the conventional wisdom in the ranking. It's for me, at least it's, you know, it's below Goodfellas and The Irishman uh, for sure. And maybe even, mm. you know, The Departed as well. So some good stuff in there. Stone in particular is interesting, but maybe not at the top. Of Scorsese's work. One more comment here from David Driscoll from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and also Washington, D.C. Was Josh doing De Niro's line readings as Sharon Stone? David, <laughs> David, come on. Here are the tie-ins, he says. The Scorsese versus Kubrick deathmatch. De Niro was in at least three movies scored by Morricone, The Mission, Once Upon a Time in America, and The Untouchables. And did Morricone score the Sharon Stone movie, The Quick and the Dead? I'll have to look that up now. Sam, Look that up for you, David. And no, Morricone did not score The Quick and the Dead. That was Alan Silvestri. Lastly, David said, there is a somewhat famous alleged story that Kubrick wanted Morricone to score A Clockwork Orange, but Sergio Leone told him he was unavailable because he was committed to one of Leone's films at the time. And something about the miscommunication of it put Kubrick off such that he never approached Morricone again. Hmm. A cinematic marriage. That never was to be, unfortunately. Thank you to David and everyone who sent us that great feedback and who entered Massacre Theater. Josh, you're going to reach into the hat. It's not very brimming, so your De Niro wasn't very recognizable, and you're going to pick out this week's winner. Maybe the uh, eighth time with De Niro will be the charm for us. Our yeah. winner is Bruce McClintock from Seminole, Florida. Congratulations, Bruce. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. <laughs> make another picture and another picture you see this is my life it always will be there's nothing else just us and the camera it's time for this week's edition of massacre theater 
I don't really think we're going to need to provide any hints, Josh. And we haven't discussed casting yet. Who's going to take what role? Because we're in a pickle here. On one hand, I would usually play the female in the scene. There's a female and male in the scene. Mm -hmm. But, and you may not even be fully aware of this. I have a little bit of a history with this other actor here on Film Spotting. Hmm. Now, only the most devoted, longtime hardcore listeners would think that's a hint at all, but there's a little bit of a history. But here's the thing. I want to be very clear about this, and I truly mean it. If you've thought about this at all, and you want to have some fun with this character, because there is one part, and it's the male role that is way more fun to try to imitate (laughs) than the role, the female one, it's all yours. I'd love to hear this i don't think i've heard your take on this actor so i'm gonna leave it up to you sir well first of all i've been i'm insulted that you're implying my technique is try to imitate i mean after many years of this adam you should know it's way more way more nuanced yeah okay that poor Um, phrasing i think i think the female role is actually you know kind of fun in this scene yeah. too. So sure. I'm going to, I'm going to give her a try and Love I want to see this. I, w- I want to see this um, <laughs> special connection you have with well, this performer. Well, this is, <laughs> this is just so much pressure now, unfortunately, but I did it to myself. So I'm going to start it off. You're going to give me the action. Are you ready? Yes. And okay. action. She expects me to marry her. That's normal. I don't want to. That's abnormal. I just, I'm not ready for marriage. Every man's ready for marriage when the right girl comes along. And Amy Kane is the right girl for any man with half a brain who can get one eye open. Oh, she's all right. What'd you do, have a fight? No. Her father loading up the shotgun? What? Please, Bertie. It's happened before, you know. Some of the world's happiest marriages have a started under the gun, you might say. Nah, she's just not the girl for me. Yeah, she's only perfect. And scene. <laughs> scene. I mean, so that was that Adam. was that actor by way of Michael's Walter Brennan. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's this is probably hey. something you experience regularly. It's very hard to perform on the other side of an atrocity. <laughs> well, wow. Then if you know what film we truly just massacred and I really did like oh. your snappiness with that role Josh. You did a good job. Well, um, really, I was so distracted. It could have been way better, but whatever was going on over there. Email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, October 5th. Sheesh. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. Oh, I don't know. Shopping? No. Well, uh, anywhere in particular? No, I just thought that I'd wonder. Oh, that's what I was going to do. Oh, yes, that's right. I forgot. It's your occupation, isn't it? Yeah, well, don't you think it's kind of a waste for the two of us? To wander separately? Uh-huh. But only one is a wanderer. The two together are always going somewhere. No, I don't think that's necessarily true. We get back to our top five landscapes as characters with that clip from a movie that's in the film spotting pantheon. So it wasn't eligible for me or Josh to pick, but our guest photographer Gregory Crudson can absolutely choose Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. It is your number two. Tell us why this 
was a necessary choice for you for this top five? Well, obviously, uh, Hitchcock's 1958 film is one of the great masterpieces, but I think the, one of the reasons I chose it is because it really is at the core of it about the nature of image making and the unreliability of representation and obsession and how obsession could shape your view of the world. And it sort of continues with that theme of the search and the pursuit. And in this case, it's a circular journey that sort of creates the kind of heightened and saturated and claustrophobic feel of, of the film. For me, obviously, San Francisco is part of the backdrop, almost a character in the film, but it's photographed with a kind of saturation and uh, a sense of artifice, both in terms of the landscapes and the interiors. And that's, I think, part of the motif of how, of constructing an image. And of course, would love to, there's so many scenes to point out, but at the core of it, it's a mirage. It's a dream. Scotty's obsession with Madeline is based on a mirage and the impossibility of obtaining it. And I think that the film sort of continually circles around the idea of image and mirage and artifice. Yeah. And, and how, how the world looks to us if we're seeing it from his perspective, from the vantage point of someone who is as obsessed as him and has this warped kind of view and sense of the world. It's, yeah, it's, it's another masterpiece. It's, um, there's, again, and this is a common to all of my selections, there's long periods with no dialogue whatsoever. And his pursuit, seen from the perspective of his car, is that beautiful sense of being there but not there. And I think that's really thematic and throughout the entire thing of this sense of presence and absence that mm -hmm. goes back and forth and uh, all done through images. Well, there's very little dialogue in my number two, at least dialogue of, of any real consequence. And I'm going in a bit of a different direction here. So I'm curious to see what you make of, of this, Gregory. Another filmmaker whose work came to mind while I was considering yours was Jacques Tati, mm. director of Playtime, Monsieur Hulot's Holiday, and others, the, the French mid-century master of these deadpan, large-scale comedies. The more I thought about it, though, I wondered if it would be, if he'd be a good fit because of that comic element. We haven't talked about films that are necessarily funny, or at least thought of initially as funny. And also this, this element that his compositions really do depend on movement a lot of times, so they're a bit removed from being still photographs. But the more I thought about it, I do think it's the care and the control of the craft that's maybe the common element here for me. Um, you've talked about how you approach your shoots like movie sets, Gregory, and you know Tati famously had a false city blocks built specifically for playtime. And so that's my pick, the 1967 film, his spoof of modernity, as it's performed, you know, in architecture, in technology, in social habits, like shopping. This is all what we see at play here. The clincher for me, as I was kind of watching scenes, seeing if I really wanted to put this on the list, was, was a moment that 
could have been pulled from a Hopper painting in terms of its aesthetics. This is where Hulot, who is played by Tati himself, he gets a nighttime tour of a man's apartment that's described as, quote, an ultra-modern building. So we watch this from outside, looking through the windows, and they've been illuminated for the evening. It's this wide shot that also captures the interiors of the neighboring apartments. So it's like these illuminated boxes we're getting little peeks into. And what you have here are multiple wordless stories that are playing out. So even as we see Tati kind of bumbling about in one window in the apartment he's been invited to, we see these other stories that we know even less about. And then we have to fill in, you know, to use your phrase, Gregory, impregnated moments that are taking place in those other windows. We have to fill those in. So again, this pick is more funny than disquieting, but it's formally very similar to these other instances of landscape and architecture that are helping to form the characters on screen and then our experience of them. So I don't know if that one's a little too light for our list, Gregory, or you think it works? I think it absolutely works. And by the way, I think humor runs through many of these films in different ways. Mm. Yeah, maybe dark humor, black humor more, yeah, but... For sure. It is one, Josh, I'll admit, I first thought couldn't possibly apply. Just because when I think of playtime, I absolutely think of just the opposite of landscapes. I think of interior landscapes, right? But mm. not exterior so much. But that shot is so great. And I, I look back at my notes from 2007. It was a discussion here on the show. I don't remember what the, what the reason was or the impetus was, but we talked about it. And that set piece you're talking about was my favorite moment in the entire movie. And you're right, it's so clever. It's so funny. And the fact that we just get to watch this visual dance that's going on between these characters in these spaces where you, you get something like someone changes the TV channel and the person on the other side gets up and turns the TV mm -hmm. as if that just got switched. Like they're, they're yeah. in unison and in sync with each other in a way that the choreography is just incredible. And you've got to be watching that so closely to catch it, right? Which is part of yep. the fun. That's the experience of Tati. Uh, Playtime is on Criterion Channel right now, so a chance to watch it there. All right. For my number two landscape as character movie, I'm going with Les Eclipse. This is The Eclipse, the Michelangelo Antonioni film from 1962. Of course, made one of the films, Gregory, I'm guessing... Everybody points to as an essential, maybe, uh, sure. <laughs> photographer movie, whether it's whether it's accurate or not is irrelevant. That would be blow up, of course. But I went with this movie because and in opposition to another Antonioni film like La Ventura, you could go with really any Antonioni film for this list. But because that's a movie, La Ventura, where the landscape itself already does so much of the work, it, it takes place on a volcanic island. But this is a movie, Le Eclis, that is the conclusion of a loose trilogy with La Ventura and La Note. And it's often referred to as an alienation trilogy, which gives you a sense, a sense of the type of imagery that uh, I'm going to talk about here. But this really is, in contrast to my last pick, Columbus, a movie that is truly all about the challenge, maybe the impossibility from Antonioni's perspective of trying to make meaningful connections in the modern world. And here, it's, it, it's all about that disharmony between the characters and the architecture and that space around them. They're, they're, detached they're, or they're smothered by their surroundings. And the the key image for me is the water tower shot, the EUR water tower shot that is in a residential neighborhood of, of Rome, where we see Monica Vitti, who's just broken up with her boyfriend at the start of the film. It's dawn. She's left his place. And everything's kind of deserted and quiet. And she's walking along the road. And we barely see her in the frame. She's just 
completely overwhelmed by the trees and this almost futuristic looking vert- vertical shape that dominates everything. And it, just when I look at that shot, it, it conveys pure isolation. And by the end of this movie, the the futility of of trying to make those connections has completely set in for these these lovers played by VT and Alain Delon. And Antonioni just finally kind of dispatches with the protagonist altogether. And he almost gets rid of people altogether by the end, the final five minutes. There's no dialogue. And it's just this sequence where we see kind of detached characters in space. Maybe the most memorable image there is the the empty intersection that he he cuts to a few times. And I'm gonna quote from Jonathan Rosenbaum here on Leia Kliss, because man, did he did he nail it and really get at a lot of the ideas we've been discussing during this top five. He thought the ending of Leia Kliss was Antonioni's greatest work. And this is from his Criterion Collection essay. He says, only a large screen can do full justice to the virtuosity of Antonioni's mise-en-scene. A sense of monumentality is basic to his conception throughout, whether the focal point happens to be a rotating electric fan at dawn a car with a corpse being hauled from a river, an illuminated street lamp at dusk, a couple necking on a sofa, or a crowd of screaming speculators. And again, how about this, Josh? As in playtime, even our misrecognition can play a role in the overall dynamics. Characters with fleeting resemblances to Piero and Vittoria pass through the intersection where their meeting fails to take place, Hmm. teasing us with possibilities. What Roland Barthes has called Antonioni's vigilance of desire has become our own, though it remains unsatisfied. And this is a key part. I think this is another word that that you've used, Gregory. It's almost as if Antonioni has extracted the essence of the everyday street life that serves as a background throughout the picture. And once we're presented with this essence in its undiluted form, it suddenly threatens and oppresses us. The implication is that behind every story, there's a place and an absence. That's the word, absence. A mystery and a profound uncertainty, waiting like a vampire at every moment to emerge and take over, to stop the story dead in its tracks man jonathan rosenbaum (laughs) with some with some great stuff some very eloquent words there about that film which honestly was the first movie that came to mind for me when we came up with this topics i was thinking about those shots i described thinking about those final five minutes of this film fantastic yeah antonioni you know came to mind for me immediately as well as a matter of fact i remember while watching ash's purest white uh I couldn't get him out of my head because of those compositions that I, the modern compositions there just seemed so much in line with what we know from Antonioni, the sense of personal alienation, you know, even mm-hmm. the very sensibility of the images um, seem borrowed from, from his work. I imagine he had to be an influence, Gregory, on your work. Oh, absolutely. Stunningly yeah. beautiful. And that quotation is like so beautifully described. Yeah, it really is. What else could you want? Yeah, no, we'll link to it in our show notes. I encourage anyone, certainly who has seen that film, to think about Jonathan Rosenbaum's phrasing there and his eloquence. So does that bring us to our number one picks? We're here. We're ready. Your number one, Gregory. My number one pick is Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Steven Spielberg's masterpiece, his greatest film, I believe, made in 1977. For me, this is the ultimate movie of a search for meaning in the landscape. As you remember, the main character, Roy, early on in the film is confronted with an extraterrestrial event, which is expressed exclusively as light. And so it directly creates a relationship between meaning and light. And then he um, proceeds to 
for some unknowable reason, build these totems and mounds first out of shaving cream and then famously mashed potatoes. And he says over and over again, this is meaningful. Mm -hmm. This means something. This is significant. And that's very much the activity of an artist, willing something into life through obsession. And for me, the, the great moment in the film is when he builds, not knowing it, a replica of the Devil's Tower in his living room using household materials and material from his garden and makes this structure that to me is the key of the film. This is like mm -hmm. the great sculpture that he built. And it's a complete collapse of interior and exterior and uh, nature and domesticity and normality and paranormality. Mm. And then finally, uh, the answer to his search is uncovered through the mediated image of the television screen. And then the movie becomes something else. But for me, that moment is a great coming together of the landscape and representation and obsession. And maybe I feel so strongly about that character because I feel like I could relate to him as, in a certain sense of like the activity of the artist willing something into life, but not knowing exactly why. Well, Gregory, one of the images from Close Encounters you shared in advance of recording was from later in the film at the mountaintop where the scientists have kind of gathered and they're all kind of looking in one direction. And that one makes me wonder about your decision making in your images when deciding where the figure should be positioned. So you even think of something like those boys in Red Star Express, the image we talked about at the top where they're, you know, they're oriented off in the direction towards the flames. So there's we can understand their positioning there, but I'm just curious in general when you're deciding where your figure should be positioned, is there a larger narrative that's always at play in your mind that they're kind of a part of or do different factors go into that decision? Well, when I place a figure, the decision's made early on in the process, and we actually use stand-ins and uh, because we have to light it. So there's no improv on my sets whatsoever. It's just once they're in position, then it's where it makes sense to me in terms of the overall narrative. Of course, they're never looking directly into the camera. Mm -hmm. It's about trying to capture something that feels slightly emptied out and indetermined. Okay. And I was, I, one of my instructions always is I want less from them in terms of like mm. motivation or in terms of gesture. I want it kind of this emptied out feeling. Of course, the difference between a movie and a still photograph is that in the end, there's only one place for them. There's only one position, one mm -hmm. possible position, as far as I'm concerned. There's more pressure on that position. Then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I too love Close Encounters. And I just wanted to say that we're so in lockstep on this film. I wrote about it briefly over on Letterboxd. And this is embarrassing to quote myself, especially after just reading Jonathan Rosenbaum. But I, I just want to prove how similarly we see this movie, Gregory. I wrote, this is important. This means something is every man's declaration, a reassuring cry to the cosmos that your life matters. You matter. But it's also the artist's creed. You may suffer, but your work matters. Art matters. And the thing that broke it all open for me in that movie, watching it recently when we talked about it on the show, 
a few years back is that all of the people who have the same vision he has and are similarly obsessed, they they all try to create it and they're all drawn to then go visit that space. And when he's with two of them as they're like making their way around the mountain, he's the only one who knows where they're going because he he made the entire thing and and they comment on it and they say something like oh we only ever did the front and and Neri has a line like you should have tried sculpturing and i just love that idea that that the artist in this case Roy Neri he was so obsessed and so determined that he found exactly the right tools he needed to complete the vision right i mean that's the that, that for me is the whole the whole film so fantastic choice perfect choice at number one, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Josh, what do you got? So the very first filmmaker who came to mind as I started doing uh, my list was uh, the director of Songs from the Second Floor. This is Swedish filmmaker Roy Anderson. We got to know his work as part of our contemporary Nordic cinema marathon back in 2016. We actually watched two of his films, Adam, for that series, Songs from the Second Floor and You, the Living. Anderson employs a fixed camera. There's often imperceptible movement on the screen, so it's almost as if he's he's just the slightest step beyond still photography in a lot of his vignettes. And his subjects, Gregory, harkens right back to what you were talking about, how you like yours to have this emptied out feeling. These are people in these vignettes who seem to be... You know, you can guess they're lonely, they're ruminative, they're also often naked, which is a recurring motif in your images, and they're just standing in these absurdly banal situations. Um, Sometimes there's drama, like a fire, but often it's just everyday life. They're basically... The best you can guess is they're contemplating what one character expresses in songs from the second floor. It's not easy being human. You know, that, that seems to be the common thing they're contemplating. Anderson actually has a new film right now about endlessness, and it's supposed to hit the States this fall. Um, But of course, as with so many titles, it has been delayed. Anticipating that, I did recently catch up with the third film in what's considered his living trilogy. That's from 2014, A Pigeon Sat on a Branch Reflecting on Existence. And it is, it's right up there with You the Living, with songs from the second floor. All three of them are a piece. For me, though, songs does remain his definitive work. And Probably the one that most evokes some of the same feelings that your images do, Gregory. Connecting to one of your influences, I think there's a vignette set in a diner in songs that it has to be a play on Hopper's Nighthawks, right? It just has to be. But I'm going to pick a different moment as the definitive Anderson moment from songs, and it's the ending. We have... In the foreground of the frame, these two crucifix salesmen talk about droll humor that we've been following off and on throughout the movie. They're dumping their unsold inventory in this trash pile that's part of this vast field. And then off in the distance, we see these ghostly figures slowly, again, almost imperceptibly moving towards them. This sequence ends on a gasping note of compositional surprise that I am not going to spoil for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, but it's it's just astounding. And I think Anderson, you know, he does have a droll touch. He's not as comic as what we get from Tati, maybe closer to the dark humor in some of these other films that we're talking about. But there's also a levity to the overall despair that we get here. So overall, I just love how this whole trilogy is is also composed of vignettes. So it's little snapshots, slightly moving still photographs, 
of their own. Um, so yeah, I'd recommend if if you haven't started with Anderson yet, maybe start with songs from the second floor. It's my number one for our list. Well, I think about that shot too and that ending, Josh, the expanse of it, the frame. If I remember it correctly, isn't there a sense that you're watching and these these figures start to emerge and and it you don't know what's really happening, right? You don't. Well, yeah. And you're you're touching on the surprise a little bit there. But but initially, yeah, those ghostly figures way in the background, yeah. you don't notice them at first. Um, it's another Where's Waldo moment. And you're like, wait, there, there's someone coming. And they're yeah. coming so slowly that as these guys continue their work unaware, it takes the figures forever to approach. And it just gives, you know, it gives a layer of suspense to, to everything else mm. that's going on. Well, Maybe in some ways it's appropriate that we've joked a little bit about how we went with a lot of choices here that are outside of this framework of American landscapes. And I've got one where it's all about the American landscape, especially, you know, this mythic West, but of course, seen through a non-American eye, the German-born director, Wim Wenders. And I think that informs probably a lot of what we see and how we see it. And you guys may remember when I sent an initial version of this list, I think I had it lower, maybe down at number four. And yeah. it's it's just the case that I I was going off of its reputation, what I remember of it back in, in college, which is the only time I saw this movie. And I found those stills online and I said, okay, I feel, I feel good about this choice, but I'm going to keep it kind of near the bottom for now. And then I rewatched it in preparation for this revisit, Josh, that we're going to do for our Patreon subscribers. And Little did I know that those five shots are just five of 50 or 100 or 150 in this yeah. in this movie, because whether we're in the desert or it's the rural roads of Texas and making our way to L.A. or in L.A. or in Houston, where we end up, the landscape is never secondary. And that's even if we're on a close up of someone driving on an expressway. There's a, a moment where Harry Dean Stanton character is, I think, heading out of L.A. on on his way to Houston. And Vendors and his DP, Robbie Mueller, they put the character slightly off to one side of the frame. And they do this a lot just so we're always aware of what's behind them or always aware of what's around them. And I know we're going to get into this a lot more in our discussion, but we can talk about this vision of America. And as I said, the mythic West as Sam Shepard, the writer envisions it on the page and then as vendors sees it, but the dominant colors are these, the fluorescent green and red. And that's really what makes these landscape scenes. So remarkable is the use of color. And one scene I come back to is an otherwise unmemorable one, I would say, or it could be in the hands of a lesser filmmaker, where Dean Stockwell, who plays Harry Dean Stanton's brother, has just gone to to Texas, where his brother has emerged after four years from the desert. They weren't even sure he was still alive. And he stopped for gas. And he's drinking coffee. He's looking at a map that's on the roof of his car. And this is a scene that's a throwaway moment. <laughs> As I, you know, for any other filmmaker, it's a throwaway moment. It might serve a narrative function, or it's just there to break up the journey a little bit. But Mueller and Vendors do not waste it. And this is where the ambiguity, I think, really comes in. There's this conflict in this entire film where there's this desire, and they accomplish it, I think, of romanticizing the landscape while also fully reckoning with the realities of it. And you see Dean Stockwell there against the ice machine, and he's he's standing by it, and he and that machine are both bathed in this kind of sickly green light, and he's leaned forward so we can very deliberately make out the gas sign 
that's showing the price behind him. And there's another kind of neon sign in the distance from another gas station, maybe. And all these artificial lights are dotting the landscape. But then you look at it, and at least for me, the colors are otherwise pleasing. There's there's red writing on that ice sign. The the sign of the gas station price is yellow. The hood of his car is blue, and and that sky behind him is this incredible deep, dark red and orange. And you you just you look at it, and yes, all of those kind of vulgar signs and street poles and man made structures are evident, and they somehow. They block our view and they distract from our sense of the beauty of nature, but they also create their own new kind of beautiful image. And I even look at the lights in the distance. They, they almost appear to me like fairies <laughs> twinkling off in the, in the landscape. It's just, it, it's remarkable. And that's just one frame. I started writing down every frame that just registered something powerful in me that, that, that was evocative to me. And the next thing I knew, I had three pages of notes where I was just I was just writing down what happened in the scene because that's how many there are in Paris, Texas. It's it's a really special film. It's one, as I said, that I hadn't seen since college. And back in college, I guess I wasn't I appreciated it, but I I, I wasn't sophisticated enough, apparently, to fully to fully appreciate it because it's a masterpiece. And I was just also going to say also relevant to the moment that we're in, it feels. And certainly that was on my short list and absolutely a masterpiece and such a gloriously beautiful movie. Yeah, I'm so glad we ended up having this assigned to us for bonus, Adam, because similar to you, I I had a vastly more rewarding experience. Liked it the first time I saw it, but this was such a rewarding revisit. I can't wait to dig in. Could it be actually that being put in the frame of mind of this top five list and looking at Gregory Crudson's work actually influenced our watching and appreciation for Paris, Texas, Josh? It's certainly possible. We might have Gregory to thank. Yeah, we might. Or Blaine. <laughs> we definitely have him to thank <laughs> for joining us for this list. This was a lot of fun. I hope it was as rewarding for you as it was for us, Gregory. I, it was a great honor, and I truly enjoyed our conversation and uh, it was uh, great to hear your choices and I feel like I learned a lot too, which is always good. Well, we did as well, for sure. It's been an education. One last parting question. Would there ever be on your part the need to make a movie? Actually, this body of work that I am premiering later this week is grounded in a film project and we've been at work on for some years and it may or may not ever happen and if it does it would have to be an ideal circumstances where i feel like i'm able to make the movie that in one way or another extends my photographic sensibility into a cinematic form without losing the questions and without losing mm -hmm. the ambiguity. Yeah. Mm. And it would definitely be from a photographer's perspective and it would have all the hallmarks of my, my photographs. Well, if it does happen, Gregory, I hope we can get an early look at it. All right. Yes, absolutely. If people want to learn more about you and your work, where should they go? Probably to the Gagosian website, which is uh, where the work is showing in LA and it will sort of continue to show throughout the year in different cities. 
Great. We will put a link to that in our show notes at filmspotting.net. And a reminder, all of the films we talked about, a lot of these images we've talked about, will all be over at filmspotting.net as well. Just click on lists or click on our episodes page. Again, Gregory Crudson, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. It was a great pleasure for me as well. All right, Josh, that's our show. We've done it. If you want more, we have more for you. Go over to the show archives at filmspotting.net. That's where you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at wbez.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.